Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. Today's guest is Carl Folks, who is an entertainment attorney at the Folks Firm, who represents a number of big name hip hop artists and more broadly entertainment, and is now expanded into sports and he's an NBA agent as well. Carl and I have done a few podcasts together. He first came on the pod in the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic. And then him and I did another podcast later on in the year, all about music publishing and all of the catalog sales that were happening. This time, though, we had a bit of a different conversation. We haven't actually talked on Wax on a podcast about Carl's background himself and just how he was able to connect the dots to be in the type of position he is today to be a young executive himself, signing some of the biggest deals with some of the biggest rising rappers. So talk to him about that and just what it's been like for someone coming out of law school. And there's so much you hear about people that come out of law school, they can't get legal jobs, but Carl's been able to establish himself and build a brand around that too. So we talked about some of the connections he's made to make that happen. And then we also talked about how he's continued to position himself and how he finds the best deals for the clients he works with and how he recently became an MBA agent. This is something that Carl had mentioned to me a little while back. So it's great to see it finally happening. And he had talks about passing the exam. He talks about some of the opportunities he sees specifically for athletes that may get overlooked and that a lot of them can capitalize on. And then we talked about what the future for the folks firm looks like. We talked about his perspective on NFTs, crypto, and that whole space. It was a really great conversation, and it was great to catch up with him as always. Hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Carl Folks. All right, we got my guy Carl Folks here, the entertainment lawyer, back with us. He's a repeat guest. We don't have too many repeat guests, but that means that we got the people that know what they're talking about. So, Carl, man, it's great to have you. Man, it's also awesome to be back on Trapital, man. Just kind of watching the platform continue to evolve has been, been pretty dope. Thank you. Thank you. And one thing that I actually don't think that we've talked about, I feel like we may have talked about it offline, but... I think that your rise, especially what you've done at such an early stage, early on in your career and where you are now has been impressive because I feel like so many people that go to law school have challenges getting legal jobs. They end up doing things that they didn't intend to do. And you not only did that, you established your own firm and you're carving your own path, doing the exact thing you wanted to do in entertainment law. Can you break down that journey for us? Like, what was it like from law school and then being able to lay that groundwork after? Yeah, you know, I would say I cheated a little bit because I had access to talent, you know, whether it be rappers, uh, you know, A&Rs, just people in the music business before I even knew, you know, I wanted to kind of be in the music business. So having access to those people, you know, at some point in my career early on, I realized it'll be about whether I can do the work and how I can actually build and, and learn the material I need to be successful. So, you know, you just take your lumps, lumps early on, but like, you know, entertainment in particular is like a very, very, who you know type business. Almost every business is like that. But I think entertainment in particular, it's, you know, do you have access to talent? Do you know the landscape? And can you continue to develop your brand across these different mediums that keep coming up. So I always thought I could compete, you know, with the new age stuff, like some of these older attorneys, they're just not probably going to beat me on the internet. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it is what it is. I grew up in this, in this ecosystem. The thing for me was always whether I was going to be able to handle the workload. And, you know, I just put myself through the gauntlet early on and kind of return profit. 
So talk to me about those relationships. Who did you know and what was that process like to get to where you are? Sure. I mean, like, you know, I just had buddies, you know, who were interning for record labels and we're talking and going back all the way to middle school, high school, just friends who were spurning traditional jobs and some even spurned college. Like, you know, we're talking about kids who everybody in their family went to college, expected them to probably be a doctor or a lawyer or something. And then all of a sudden they're saying like, no, I want to find the next influencer early on. So I had a buddy named Zach Friedman who runs homemade projects out in LA now, but it was based in the Philadelphia area. And um, Zach was very, very early and kind of um, the influencer game just started working with influencers, a lot of viral kids. And eventually he kind of grew his empire out to a point where, you know, we partnered with 10K projects and, and Universal to, to get his imprint and, and built that out. And they have a huge merch business. So like I had access to Zach and everything he was doing, you know, even when I was just like a kid who was even kind of thinking about the music industry. And then just some of the culture points in New York City, right? Nightlife you know all that stuff. You just meet a lot of kids and a lot of talented people just from a regular vantage point. And I was always the first person to tell people, hey, I'm the next lawyer. Like, that's my thing. Like, I'm going to be the next lawyer. So just putting myself out there and then and then just even starting to work with some talent. I was on the team for a couple artists that eventually, one artist in particular who, who had a viral song called Gassed Up. I uh, had a buddy who was managing. He kind of brought me on as a this person who does like the, maybe the serious side of the business. That sort of stuff kind of led me to just getting that experience as I needed. And, you know, by the time I was done with that stuff, you know, I was kind of in law school about to finish. And all of a sudden I had access to, to A&Rs, people in the business. I was putting myself out there constantly. And um, that was kind of my trek. You spoke it into existence, man. I'm going to be on that level. I'm going to be a lawyer someday. And I think the interesting thing too, is that you were in that position. I think a lot of people in your position with those connections, knowing and having access to the A&Rs, they would have been prime targets to work at a record label, work at a publishing company. And there are so many of those jobs there, but you were like, no, I want to start my own firm. I want to build that up. What was that decision like? I mean, a lot of it what was probably just a level of stubbornness, right? I mean, like, you know, I think I was trying to get out of the working industry. I mean, you know, I work probably 30 times more, you know, hours per week now as a person who runs his own law firm. But, you know, I just kind of wanted to get out of the workforce. So I was like, that's probably not an option. And then some of those old stigmas, I think, you know, as, as someone who really prides themselves on, on entrepreneurship and black entrepreneurship in general, we talk about those pillars like ownership, group economics, things like that. I just didn't think the record labels and the publishing company stood for that. And part of me still feels like that today, right? So I just didn't want to be a part of it. I kind of wanted to be on the other side where we were going against them and trying to shift the thing, the way things were. That makes sense. And what does the firm look like today? I know you've been building things up. You have the team. What is the structure like? Yeah, I mean, I have a full-time employee. Um, I have some independent contractors hiring another attorney this fall, winter. So that, that'll be dope. Should be able to give a lot of workload out to them. But really just building out. You know, I think the next phase, building a law firm is different than you're building a regular startup or early stage small business. Just the structure of it, the way you kind of bill, the way um, profit gets made. It's a client serving business and, you know, it's just kind of hard to package that for money, you know, but you still need funding to escalate. And, um, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just in the process now of raising funds to actually go out there. And the same way I didn't want to work at these record labels, I'm still, I'm trying to compete like that on the law firm side. I don't want it to be boutique. I'm just going to, 
I don't want to be a boutique law firm for 10 plus years. I want to grow this. I hear that. And you mentioned that you're raising funds. And that isn't something that I normally hear people say that are running law firms. What does that process look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult process. I think you're just not going to give away. There's so many different rules of professional conduct and responsibility um, in the professional service industry. So I can't go out there and hit up VCs and just pitch, give, send them a pitch check to get money. But I think there are ways, whether it be grants, loans, the way you raise business um, money on that front is more like that. Probably not going to give up any equity or anything, but a lot of it's leveraging personal finance in business. And obviously the profits I made over the past three or four years and getting the best loan probably possible. Right. And I'm sure too, it's more broadly looking at investors. Like it's not necessarily looking at venture capitalists that are looking for these home run type returns that they would be from, you know, Uber and Airbnb or something like that. But no, you have a healthy business that is going to generate returns. You're banking on this industry that is one of the most bankable assets. So being able to invest in you as part of that is an extension of that. Yeah, I would say the last thing, you, you hit it right on the nail. I think one of the last things I pitched to people, whether it be for this business and then sort of me opening up firm sports that, you know, I think we'll talk about a little bit later, but just access to a community that, you know, these people really can't reach. Like, you know, everybody wants access to these athletes and entrepreneurs and artists and rappers and um, influencers. If I can be that person who's the bridge, which which oftentimes I am, whether it be a VC or connecting these people to um, different money-making opportunities, I think that's the real value add. And I think it's connecting commerce to culture. No, that's smart. That makes a lot of sense. And I think too, just with the access you've had, you've been able to work with some artists that are doing some big things. I know for you recently, you had Section 8 who had produced uh, Lil Baby's Bigger Picture. And that was one of the biggest songs this year. And I feel like that must have been a special moment just seeing him perform that on the biggest stages this year. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, you know, Section 8's a kid who... 18 years old when we met from Atlanta in just a rough environment. And the kid was just, just built for it, man. He was, he was super impressive and just developed that relationship with Baby directly. And it's kind of just like one of those stories. You, you can't really make this stuff up. And, you know, now he's obviously, you know, working with Baby on, on a bunch of stuff. Uh, but he's he's opened his catalog up beyond Baby. And, you know, he's produced songs for Moneybag, Yo, Cardi B, Migos. He's just taken that and, and run with it. And, you know, kind of, you know, funny enough, he got with Baby at the right time because 2020 was arguably, you know, he, he was probably arguably Raps MVP. And to be the go-to producer for Raps MVP, that's stuff that you dream about as a kid. So I, I, just seeing that and just building with him and sort of weathering the storm, right? Just the highs and lows on that come up. It's just been awesome. And, um, you know, he's been killing it. You know, one of my other clients, I would say, um, Blast, who's just... Blast is, is, is really probably, he's going to enter that stratosphere next. Like, you know, you know, I'm talking about those, those Travis Scott's, those, that's where I see him going. And just seeing his grind over the past two and a half, three years, it's kind of a testament to to sort of maybe like, you know, one of those things that, you know, if I wasn't confident, it kind of just supported that. Like, yo, you saw that two and a half years ago and you dug into the trenches with these guys and, and just put in work beyond what your average lawyer does. You know, I think for a lot of these kids, they don't even view me as their lawyer. Like, it's more of their business advisor. Sometimes we do partner on stuff outside of um, my representation of them. And that's kind of how we built. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also think that just given how much attorneys and law is ingrained with the music industry overall, that 
people in your position do have to do more than just processing the contracts and things like that, right? You need to have the purview of everything that's going on to be able to do your job well. Yeah, I think, you know, just another stakeholder in your business that that can, that has access to resources that you probably don't have access to and a vantage point, as you sort of, you just pointed out that you might not have access to. So I think a lot of attorneys probably are what you just said, to be honest with you. I think most are kind of paper pushers, but I actually think the opportunity to add, to provide extra value is so sort of right in front of your face that I think the next batch of entertainment attorneys probably will see themselves more as on stakeholders, uh, a part of the team who are looking to contribute outside of filing trademarks and copyrights, but really just being a partner in the business as well. And I think for you, you obviously know that encompasses so much, but I think you do a good job just with your own presence and what you communicate of boiling it down into things that are tangible and easy to understand. And you had this tweet a couple of weeks ago that stuck out to me. You had said that creators need to keep it simple and focus on four things with their contract, length, obligation, money, and ownership. And I felt like that was a very focused way to communicate those things that are important. And it'd be great for you to talk a bit more about that. Like, how did you boil that down? And what are some of the trends you're seeing that led to that? Yeah, no, I think a lot of times people get caught up in these nuanced articles and they might read Billboard Biz or they might even get deep into like Music Business Worldwide and all these websites that are talking about deep specific issues and things that they feel might be relevant to them, but they're probably not, right? I mean, at this stage of their career, the biggest thing early on is focus on those four principles that I just said, right? Like the, the length of agreement, um, how long are you in that agreement? Like that should be a no brainer, but oftentimes the amount of people I've worked with who said, I don't know, like, or I'm picking up, I'm trying to help them get out of a bad contract. It's like, yo, how long was the agreement for? And, and like uh, two years and you look at it, it's like two years with like two options on it that, the company has to decide. So it's like, man, you don't even know how long you're in that contract. And that's probably the most pivotal, one of the most pivotal points, you know, obligation. What is this asking you to do? Like, what are you obligated to do? And you know, it seems simple, but again, like a lot of people don't even know what they're obligated to do when they sign a contract, which is crazy. You know, ownership again, like that's, that, that kind of speaks for itself. Are we doing a licensed deal? Do they own it? If they do own it, is there a reversion right? Is it a work for hire? So many important things, right? Because, you know, if it's a work for hire, even though this stuff's kind of being litigated in present time, you know, if it's a work for hire, there's really no statutory right to reversion. Like, that's, it's a work for hire. But if it's a copyright transfer, there is a reversion that, that the law says. Like, it's a statutory reversion, not like a contractual reversion. So those things, like, are all simple things. As an artist, you're never going to probably, like, I try to teach my guys in digestible nuggets because, you know, it's not their job to be an A-plus wizard in law. It's my job. They're just supposed to know what the hell they're signing. And I try to boil it down to, to four things and, um, you know, all the other stuff that we, we can get into. Yep. That makes sense. And I think that just being able to do that is important because I think you're realizing what's right is that there's so much information out there. That's part of the challenge. And we're in this era where, now everyone wants to have ownership. Everyone wants to do these things. And that's all great. But at the end of the day, you do need to know, okay, what are you signing? What does this entail? And I think that communication does need to be simplified in a lot of ways. I wish that it was easier. And I wish that that was the assumption. But I think sometimes people may hear like, oh, well, there's so much information out there. Why are artists still signing X, Y, and Z deals? And 
I think as we've seen in broader with society, just because there's more information about things doesn't mean that people are necessarily always better off to then act on what's there. So being able to like have it be like not necessarily punchy, but easy, quick things to remember helps things move along. And I just don't know if I'm seeing that as much outside of some of the stuff that you're pushing. Yeah. You know, and I've even tried to challenge myself over the past, probably past four or five months to kind of try to think about what's next, right? Because there is a lot of stuff out there and it's constantly being pumped out. And that's why, you know, sort of, I think Donald Passman's book is so successful because it's a, I think the stuff that he's saying is fairly simple stuff. And there's some, some nuanced things in there, which and it's a great book, but the format's very digestible. It's a book, right? You read it start to finish. It's organized, kind of gives you like a step-by-step guide. Here's how you do it. Here's how you digest it. And I think that part's been lost in it all. It's like right now, as you just said, everything's just on the internet. There's no really processing how you're going to take it in. Class format, people say you don't need school, which might be true, but you know, one of the things that that school does is it kind of teaches you in like an organized fashion. And I think that's important. Like we all learn differently, but I will say organized learning is a lot better and easier than, you know, just information in a bunch of different places. Right. And I'm sure for you too, not only does it help educate your clients, but by you putting it out there, I'm sure that increases your deal flow and your access to other people to do deals with in the future. Yeah, no, it definitely did. I think, you know, at one point it was even kind of overwhelming, like, because I I was genuinely putting it out there kind of in support of the community that, you know, given me so much, right? They've given me a career. Artists and producers um, have given me a career. So I felt like I owe the ones I can't reach and I won't be able to reach to put out good information for them. Kind of just pushing forward, man. You know, it's always about whoever's next up, just having more resources and, and more information than I did. And and that's really what it was about. But, you know, on the flip side, as you just said, there's days and weeks where I'm getting 30 intake emails a week and it's just like, it's a bit overwhelming. And then you start thinking like, yo, you know, am I a content creator? Is my goal to build my firm out? Is my, you know, all those things have sort of come about over the past three, four years, um, in particular the past year or two. And those are just things that, you know, I'm working through just like every other entrepreneur out there. Where do you stand on that now in terms of, are you a content creator or is this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I don't want to cop out of the question, but I think we're all content creators, but I think the new age, like professionals should be content creators, not low hanging fruit content. I think everyone should like focus more and create niche content or really focus on creating stuff that's going to last and create that real valuable community. That's how you do it. But I think all of us have the ability to, and if you do have the knowledge and you have the ability to tell stories or write, you will be a content creator. But as you know, bandwidth is really, really, really important. Not biting off more than you you can chew and having direction. I always say direction is more important than speed. So you kind of get lost in the sauce, kind of just putting stuff out there, feeling like you're a content creator. How can you create all this content while servicing your clients? And you know, it's a big circle. So I've kind of fallen back a little bit from creating content and kind of just trying to master, really, 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 really master my job. I know I'm good. I think I, I have the ability to be one of the best. And for me, my focus is there and I'll just put out content when I can. That's kind of where I stand right now. Well said, man. I do think that we are all content creators. It's just a matter of like where you lie on the spectrum. And yeah, I mean, if you're putting out anything, any of us that are on Twitter or posting things on social media, there's some level of that. It's just a matter of how do you balance that and have everything there? So yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. 
I mean, think of a few. I mean, I feel like I'm obviously following your journey and being a fan of what you do. Just, just seeing how you've had to sort of make pivots, like you had to change, you know, some of the things you were doing in an effort to put out better stuff or, you know, create a model that makes sense for you from a financial perspective or, or even just from an impact perspective. It's just like these things are constantly being tweaked um, and then, you know, until you feel like it's right. Definitely. Yeah, I think for me, it was yeah similarly where the direction does matter more than the speed. You have to make sure that you're looking at, okay, what is, how does this resonate with the audience? And ultimately, what is this getting to? It's one thing to just create content for content's sake, but it has to tie back to something. So I mean, like, let's look at both of us, right? I think for you specifically, you know where the highest revenue levers are in terms of what you're currently doing and what you can also expand to. So if you're creating content that doesn't help that direct thing, how does that help you with what you're doing? And I think similarly with me, I am spending a lot of my time creating content, but there's also other things that I'm doing besides that and doing the content helps those things. So I'm cognizantly making sure that if I'm putting a piece of content out, it's either helping a, the further development of what I'm doing from either the content perspective or from the other things that I have planned, not just in the business now, but for lining things up down the road into the future. Yeah. And honestly, again, it goes back to kind of just, just wanted to, what are you, right? Like, you know, for me, I also realized a lot over the past three, four years, like I'm also a product guy. Like I want to put out product into the ecosystem. I want to do a lot of brand stuff. I, I want to contribute to lifestyle and culture kind of the same amount as I want to contribute to, to intellectual stuff. But you can't do it all at once. You kind of have to prioritize things that make sense. And I think those decisions and the way you sort of start to balance those decisions out and, you know, what's balance your priorities, I think that sort of dictates where you go, right? I think it literally, you know, some people end up making the wrong decision and, and they're doing something they don't want to do. Um, other people are sort of challenging themselves to like, to really prioritize what's important to them, what's not important to them, what's important, like, you know, where do you want to be, you know, five, 10 years from now? And that might change, but, you know, every decision that you do now impacts where you're going to be five, 10 years from now. Agreed, man. Agreed. Let's shift gears a bit. You mentioned this earlier in the conversation, sports and you getting more involved with sports. And I know this is something we had lightly talked about in the last conversation, but now it's dope to see because you were bringing people along the process of you wanting to become an NBA agent. I remember when you posted about taking the exam and now you've done it and saw that you were at summer league and everything. So first off, congrats. And second off, tell me the story. Like, what was it like getting through that process and where you are today with things? Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, it's like, it feels like you're starting from the bottom again. I have a basketball background and a sport background first. Like more so, I interned for the Brooklyn Nets. You know, I interned with the, the New York Knicks. I played AU basketball. I was, a, I was a good player in Jersey. I thought basketball, I was, I was a basketball is life kid. Like, you know, that, that's really where I was at. So I kind of always knew the game was going to get me again. I just felt like I had a lot of stuff I was doing on music was similar to the stuff I could be doing in sports. And I thought my profile was rising in, in music and I was getting some stability. And so my clients were reaching a certain point where things were just starting to ring bells. And I wanted to use that cultural currency to kind of, again, do something that you want to do, make an impact, tell the same story in sports. I also think, you know, in a lot of ways, athletes aren't as, they're missing a lot of revenue streams that they could have access to if they wanted to. So I really just wanted to sort of like bring a lot of that spirit to them too. So just took the exam, studied for it, paid the fee, 
And, you know, now it's about recruiting. Again, it's like the, it's, it's ground floor stuff. And the separate entity is firm sports. And, um, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm building a team out on that side. And I, I was able to raise money. It's a little cleaner process there. I actually, I could go to VC or traditional funding. I can get that on the sport, on the sports side. There's no, no limitations there. Um, I think it's a similar business model. It's not like a quick flip. Like you're not going to invest in an agency and, you know, it's not going to be an Uber return, right? Like it's, it's, this is not what it is, but you have access to now if you're an investor, I think it's a relatively low cost of entry. And then the access that you get with that cost of entry and the potential financial upside, that's a unique combination because again, you can you can go out there and get, you know, you might have you know an entrepreneur. It might be a, you know one of my one of my investors has entrepreneur uh, restaurants and things like that, and he might um, want to have my athletes, you know, go in those restaurants and you know all that stuff comes full circle for them. So now it's just recruiting, man. It's it's recruiting on the on the basketball side is very unique. I think it's like a very clicky, tight knit circle basketball more so than music. I think. You know, music, your homie, you know, down the street can be a producer, a rapper, and all of a sudden you're a manager. And all of a sudden that guy gets a hit, produces from his bedroom, and, you know, you're at least in conversations that you would never have gotten to before. You know, in basketball, I just feel like these communities have been sort of cemented for so long and people. So it's it's a different struggle. But, you know, I think my value add as a business person, someone who, who um, you know, helps their clients navigate the trickiness and um, some of the some of the horrible things that have happened to, to black athletes and entrepreneurs and entertainers, I proved myself on that, and, and I'm also aggressive in, in a positive way. Like you know, I want these people to maximize earning power, make the biggest impact possible in their communities. And I know I'm as a young black entrepreneur, I know I think I know how to do that. So my pitch on the on the sports side is very consistent and similar to the, to the pitch on the on the music side. But my sleeves are rolled up, and I'm just I'm in I'm in there, man. I'm just competing. I hear that. And you mentioned earlier that you think athletes are missing some revenue streams. What are those revenue streams you think they're missing? Well, yeah, you know, I, I thought, so one, you know, NIL, <laughs> funny enough, I'm not that smart to time my entryway into sports. You know, the same time NIL becomes eligible. I really didn't, you know, what it you was. You did get perfect timing though. And it was perfect timing. So <laughs> um, I think college athletes in particular were missing revenue streams, but that's, that's obviously weren't allowed to do that. But I just think that brand building in sports can be a lot better, right? You think about the, the middle tier, or lower tier artists. I think they just do a better job of galvanizing their community on social media, telling their story, getting out there, talking to fans. We think about like a, a middle tier, lower tier athlete, and you know, at the highest level, I'm talking about professionally, be the ninth, eighth man on the Dallas Mavericks. You know, you're making a lot of money, and you have that cultural cachet because you are a talent. But you're probably not maximizing or squeezing that lemon to go out there and make something special. Like you have that ability, you can tell your story. You can. It's happening a bit more. Like like I'm seeing vlog people telling their stories, their articles. But like I think almost every athlete has the potential to at least be a micro influencer if they don't consider themselves that, and then use that cultural currency that comes with being a professional athlete to get access to investments that other people don't have access to, to get access to that. I'm looking at, it's not that sophisticated. I think the education's off. And I think some of the people, you know, or, who are in the sports world are, they not know the game, but they're not necessarily proven entrepreneurs or people with experience investment and building companies. So I think there's so much more value that's being missed. And I'm excited to help athletes explore it. That's really kind of where my head's at. 
let's go out there and just be aggressive and you know maximize your earning power and set you up for for your your days after sports yeah i think that middle tier that lower tier point is spot on because we see so many of the deals dominated by the superstars, right? LeBron has this movie coming out with Warner Brothers or Dwayne Wade has this show on that cube show that he has. Like all of those people are doing the big stuff. And maybe I'll hear a little bit about the people that are a step lower. Like I know that Spencer Dinwiddie has some things or like Josh Hart has a podcast, but I think you're right. These are still people that have, in most cases, hundreds of thousands of followers on some type of platform. They have the ability to maximize that in some way. And especially the NBA players, because I think in some ways, some of those middle tier NBA players may be just as popular from like a global impact perspective as some of the top tier players in other professional sports leagues and those top tier players in other professional sports leagues may be maximizing their platform more relatively than the mid-tier NBA player would. And I think that's a big arbitrage opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. You think about it, like a lot of these athletes have been building a community, especially this next generation. I'm talking about like the Mikey Williams, the kids, the high school kids who have literally been building their brand since they've been infant because that's just the, the way social media has been built but you know some of these guys are going to just have community at the high school level right people are going to file Sierra K and you know, whatever high school they went to um they're going to have community at the college level or if they play immediately you know you went to michigan right michigan college basketball player that the alumni base the fan group that went to michigan the strings that you'll have in, the, in their heart will last a lifetime and then you build that community again at the professional level in, in these cities that you're contributing in. Like I said, it's really a, I just don't think they're squeezing it hard enough. Some people are, right? You talked about Spencer Dinwiddie. He does some unique stuff. Andre Iguodala is obviously another person who's used his cultural cachet and, you know, his access to some of these billionaires and millionaires that he knows, right? That's another thing I didn't even mention. Just the access they have to a group of people that me and you don't have access to, I know, but we'd love to have access to. Guys like Andre Godala have proven that I am an entrepreneur and I think there's so much value to be created from the sports career that I have. But it, I feel like it's happening. I'm optimistic. I think there's more people like me who have led the way. I mean, there's people who've been doing it, you know, for years before I ever, you know, even thought about doing it. So shout out to them. But, you know, it's always about pushing it forward. And that's just where my head's at. I think that college athlete thing and thinking about their alumni base is a really good point because you mentioned Michigan. Obviously, I went there and I went there the time that Trey Burke was there. And Trey Burke has been in the NBA for years now. You know, I think he's been on a few different teams doing his thing, but Michigan folks still beloved Trey Burke. He's like royalty there. I think so much of us still look at that 2013 national championship as a big missed opportunity. And we'll complain about some of the ref calls and all that, but he's royalty there. And I think there's so much that can be tapped into thinking about how big Michigan's alumni base. I think it has one of the largest in the country by far. You tap into that. And I think there's some really powerful things. And I think so much of the sponsorship opportunities get looked at in the same way that it's like, okay, who gets the most highlights on House of Highlights or Bleacher Report? But it's not about that. You got to think about what are those powerful niches. In some ways, this may seem like a bit of a stretch comparison, but it kind of reminds me of how Cameo has been successful, like what they've done with some of their partnerships they've had with different personalities or creators. And their whole thing was like, we're finding the opportunity of people who are more famous than they are rich. So that's how you have like the guy from the office who's making like $2 million a year from Cameo, right? 
But I feel like what you're describing is almost a similar situation because there are some athletes who are more famous than they could be rich based on some of those deep alumni connections that they do have. Spot on. And, you know, part of it's like the education that's been around them. Like you're an athlete, do your job, you know, focus on that. But you have the ability to turn that fame you know, at whatever level it is into to more dollars. And it doesn't have to be in a non-tasteful way. It could be, it could be very tasteful. It can be very impact-driven. It could be very, very generational wealth creating for your family and others around you for, for years to come. So the dynamic athlete, I'll call it, I think those people are going to start coming out a little bit more. I think people like LeBron are leading the way. I think he's like, he's just spot on as a person. I know he's the greatest of all time, arguably the greatest, one of the greatest of all time, but not just because of basketball. I think, you know, across the board, he's kind of, you know, led the way in terms of like building real companies and that can't be overlooked. Yeah. And I think too, just given some of the people we're talking about, the things they're getting involved with, this landscape is just changing so fast. I feel like there's so many opportunities with NFTs or tokens or cryptocurrency. And I feel like from an art perspective and more broadly an entertainment perspective, that must be impacting your work quite a bit, especially this past year. How's that been? Yeah, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with NFTs. I, th- I think crypto and its, and its use case and its value are still being figured out. I think there's a lot of, there's, it's more theory than practice, right? But I think NFTs as it relates to the music industry kind of really hold no value, literally. I mean, unless Spotify or some of these other companies adopt digitized payment systems that allow people to sort of, like it, it's, it just doesn't make sense. And then copyright law is another thing that just kind of blows that up to a point where, you know, a lot of the same challenges I think that you've had before NFTs doesn't really change the game too much from a music perspective, but I, I will say blockchain has the potential to revolutionize the industry. And but I'm sure if you heard that before, I think there's some real use case value there, but you know, NFTs in general, I think probably stand right now. I think their best value probably is what we kind of know is like digital collectibles or, or art pieces. I think it just, it makes more sense. Like, you know, especially when you build your community, it's like, it doesn't really, you can't skip your line. Like you got to have community first to build like a valuable NFT. But I, I think there is some real value there, right? It's like, you know, whether it be a digital piece of art, you know, you can see who owns it and you can see the original version and it's, you know, on chain. That's pretty cool. Kind of other than that, I'm sort of at, I'm like, all right, we need to, plus some of these bigger companies, if they don't start adopting blockchain technology or sort of, I just don't see how, how big of an impact it will have, I guess, in, in the music industry. That's that is where, where I stand. It'll be interesting. I think we'll probably see some varied approaches. And I think the space is just so raw right now that, to your point, I think we do have to see how a lot of this will, will shake out for sure. But I guess in terms of other extensions, though, are there other areas or new spaces that you haven't entered yet that you're excited about getting into at some point? We're definitely real estate. Like I, I think with every day, the more you see in the you sort of start, you know, looking at your values and why you start doing stuff. For me, it's always been, you know, impacting community and, you know, and those are those are broad words, but specifically kind of just like the black community and black entrepreneurship. And I'm based in Newark these days. People are always like, well, well, why out of all places did you sort of plant your flag in like Newark, New Jersey? Well, you know, as a strong black ecosystem, historically black city and powerful black city, black mayor, and, you know, it's not too many more of those types of cities in the Northeast, um, sizable population and some real value to be made. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to try to, I'm a Jersey native. Um, I'm from the other side of the state, but I just feel like, you know, it's hard to do anything without having the spaces for people. 
And with real estate, it's less about me owning apartment towers and then buildings. Yeah, I'm sure I want that too. But it's more so about creating spaces that I feel like I never had in Jersey. And I kind of think I know, you know a little bit about what spaces that young kids kind of need to create and learn and stuff like that. So my head is kind of, all right, I'm getting some of this recognition. My clients are, are pretty good. We're building. So let me do what I'm telling the athletes to do, kind of using that, that cultural currency to sort of to create a larger impact. That makes sense. Yeah. It's like practice what you preach. You do it yourself. You'll be able to make, you know, an even bigger statement when you're trying to push other people to do it. I hear that. And I respect that too, man. That's what's up. Well, hey, man, this was great. It was really great to talk to you. Good having you on. And before we let you go, give the listeners some Spotify recommendations, specifically from some of the artists that you represent. Who are some of the people that they should check for and add to their list? Yeah. I mentioned Blast's name earlier, BLXST. Um, he has a song with Ty Dolla and Tyga um, called Chosen. It was at the end of that stupid challenge that was on TikTok going viral. But that's that song, incredible. He dropped a project called No Love Lost that that's, that's kind of universally you know, recognized as a special project. You know, Moneybag Yo is killing it. One of my producers uh, turned me up on YC um, that I represent. He produces almost everything for that for that dude, Waikisha, songs like that. So Moneybag, he actually has the top-selling hip-hop album of 2021 until this moment in time. That'll probably break because of Kanye and Drake. But Moneybag Yo is, is a great listen. And then Dro Kenji, a new kid I'm working with, is a client. Um, shout out to his manager, John Hicks. Dro Kenji is with Internet Money um, and 10K Projects, but it's kind of like a, a cross between punk rock, R&B, rap. So it's a dope fusion. See like you know, young black kids kind of making this music and pushing the token, the totem pole a little bit. It's, it's awesome to see. So Joe's another guy I recommend you listen to. Good stuff. Well, thanks, bro. Appreciate it. This is dope. Appreciate it, brother. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week. Thank you.